As we venture into Lord's Day 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism, please turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 and verses 1 through 14. Genesis chapter 17 and verses 1 through 14. And this is God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord also add his blessing to the preaching thereof. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Last week, we were introduced to the basics of the sacrament of baptism as we learned about how its picture and reality are connected, how they relate to each other, the picture and the real thing behind the picture. And we saw that baptism is actually a motion picture of the reality of the washing away of sins, and that, as the Heidelberg Catechism teaches, as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly Christ's blood and his Spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. 
And since we now know what baptism generally means and what it represents, we shall this evening study its mode and its subjects. So in other words, we shall ask two questions, the one being, how shall we baptize? And the second one, who shall we baptize? And accordingly, our outline will have two headings. The first one is the mode or the how of baptism, the mode of baptism, and the second one being the subjects or the who of baptism, the subjects of baptism. Let us turn to the first one, the mode of covenant baptism, or how are we to baptize? And for our answer, let us turn uh, to question answer 72 of the Heidelberg Catechism, where it asks the following question. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? I think we understand the question. Does the water itself, the chemical substance of the water, the practice of baptism, does this wash away sins? And the Heidelberg Catechism, as usual, making not much talk about it, clearly says no. Only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Now, here we are reminded that baptism is only the picture and not the real thing. Baptism itself, in and of itself, has absolutely no power. The rite itself has no power. It is a picture. We have learned that sacraments are signs. What are signs? Signs are outward and visible representations of an inward, invisible work of grace. And these two we have to differentiate. The real thing that happens in a person's heart and the picture that represents it. So sacraments are motion pictures, as we have said, to show us spiritual uh, realities. If you want to call it, it's holistic learning. A thing that uh, the, the science of pedagogy just rediscovered a few decades ago was in the Bible all along. Holistic learning, learning for all the senses. So the sacraments are motion pictures, and both sacraments teach us in different ways the same thing, that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. And as we have heard in Lord's Day 26 last time, baptism is a picture for the washing away of sins by the blood of Christ. And it assures believers that, as the Catechism says, that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly, uh, or let me rephrase that, as certainly as you see water washing away uh, dirt from the body, as certain as you can see, touch it, feel it, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins, from all of soul's impurity, all of our sins. And it is not the picture, but only the spiritual reality which it represents that unfolds power and efficacy. We see this clearly as John the Baptist compares his baptism to the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, the real baptism, when he says, I baptize you with water. 
for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So here you see the comparison between the picture, water, baptism, and the real thing that the Lord Jesus Christ does through uh, his Holy Spirit. So the picture, the water, spiritually does nothing, but the real thing behind it does everything. And now, of course, that begs the question of question 73. I mean, the catechism is thinking ahead. It just made a statement, and it anticipates objections, and here is one. As it asks, why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? Now, it is asking, so if the, if the picture is nothing and the spiritual reality is everything, why does Scripture sometimes use the element that we use in the picture as if it was the real thing? And it refers to texts like Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where it says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, so why, it asks, why, why does the Bible seem to use those two interchangeably? The picture and the real thing is maybe the picture, the real thing. Are the Roman Catholics right? That baptism itself has in itself power. The right has power. And we have to say no. As question uh, 73 gives us a great answer. It says, God has good reason for these words. To begin with, he wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water uh, removes dirt from the body. But more importantly, it continues, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. That's why the Bible sometimes interchanges the terminology of the picture with the real thing. It wants to tell us, you all know how water works. You know how it washes off dirt. Look at it. Look at this closely. It is as real. The spiritual reality is as real as the picture that you can see and hear and feel or in the Lord's Supper even taste. The Heidelberg Catechism explains to us that the picture represents the reality so well that the two are sometimes used interchangeably, synonymously, because God wants to assure us, it says, by this divine pledge and sign, that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. And that's why it uses this terminology. And this connection between the picture and the real thing is called sacramental union. It's not that you have to remember it, but if you run into this term, you know what it means. There's a union between the picture and the reality. In other ways, in other words, the picture must be true. It must be true to an extent that it truly represents what it talks about. And this sacramental union is also very well explained in the Westminster Confession, chapter 27, paragraph 2. It says, There is 
in every sacrament, and if it says every, it means two. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the names and the effects of the one are attributed to the other. When it says be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, it doesn't mean that baptism uh, forgives the sins, but it says that as surely as baptism cleanses you from dirt, as surely the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ through his blood will grant you true forgiveness for all times. And it is the same principle, this sacramental uh, union, uh, why we must be true uh, in the picture that it really represents the spiritual reality. And that's why, for example, churches use wine and bread for communion, for the Lord's Supper, and not Coca-Cola and chocolate. It would be a, a wrong sign. Uh, the bitter wine that is to, uh, to represent the sufferings of Christ cannot be Coca-Cola sugar water. It has to be the fruit of the wine. And, uh, the, uh, and, and, and the bread... Uh, has to represent the breaking of his body. And the Bible says bread, and it says wine. That alone should be enough for you. But the reason why it says it is because the picture in detail must represent the real thing. And the same principle holds true for our explanation as to why or as to the mode of our baptism, why we sprinkle or pour and do not immerse. Because, and I want you to listen carefully, this will be the answer as to how we baptize. I will bring the explanation a little later. That's probably from having been a prosecutor. First you want to tell them what you want to say, and then you make the case for it. So here it is. Because in the Holy Scripture, we are never applied to the blood of Jesus Christ, but the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to us from above. That is the explanation. We are not applied, or even worse, we do not apply ourselves to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but God sovereignly applies the blood from above unto us. The picture has to fit the reality. We do not immerse ourselves in the blood, but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is sprinkled on us. The Holy Spirit comes down on us from Above, And that's why in John chapter 3, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he says he must be born from above. It actually doesn't say you must be born again. That is just a more of a loose translation. It says you must be born from above. Because if you only say you must be born again, it's not wrong. It's correct. It's a second birth. But that's not what it says. It does say it has to come from above. And remember, the picture must represent the reality. Or in Hebrews chapter 9, where it talks about the superiority of Christ as our high priest, uh, over against the Old Testament pictures of washings and cleansings, it says in verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer Sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? 
to serve the living God. So he talks about the blood of Christ. If those sprinklings in the Old Testament were done in the faith of the ultimate sprinkling that will clean us, how much more will the real sprinkling really cleanse us from our sins. And it, it talks about sprinkling the unclean. Or then verse 19 of Hebrews 9, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and what? Sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then the next verse, 21. Then likewise, likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. You see, the book of Hebrews shows us that the Old Testament pictures uh, are... Just that, pictures that talk about the reality, about the sprinkling, the application of Christ's blood to us through the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 3, verse 16, we see John the Baptist again putting those two alongside each other. The sign of the real thing, and he says, I indeed baptize you, and listen to this, baptize you with water, not in water. He says with and if you're grammatically uh, precise, which you have to be if you exegete the Word of God, it is water being applied to the person, not the person being applied to water. So I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose, he will baptize you with, same word, the Holy Spirit and fire. So the sign is water baptism. The real thing is baptism with the Holy Spirit because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both are applied to the person, and not the person is applied to them, or even worse, the person applies himself. Uh, you, you have to understand this. Immersion is basically a picture of Arminianism. Why do I say that? Because in it, Man takes the blessing rather than receives it from above. And this is exactly in line with the soteriology of Arminianism, that man still, although he's completely fallen, apparently still has enough goodness in himself to want and to do what is good, which is in contrast with the Scriptures. So the symbolism is, and you will hear me say this often, symbols are important. You put him under the water, he applies himself to the water, rather than God sovereignly applies his blessing from above at his own mercy. Then in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, Luke quotes the Lord Jesus Christ, referring back to John's prediction, telling that the disciples should stay in Jerusalem and wait for the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, we have the very fulfillment of this promise as the Holy Spirit was what? Poured down on the church. It was coming down, the Holy Spirit, He was coming down from above. And that was the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Nobody applied Himself to anything. Nobody bathed in anything. In fact, in all of the Bible, in all of the Old Testament, 
There is no bathing in anything. Washing by its definition has to be a sprinkling because otherwise you wash yourself ultimately in your own dirt. It doesn't go away. But the water that comes from above washes away. It's gone, never to be seen uh, again. So they were not immersed in the Holy Spirit. They didn't take a bath in the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit was sovereignly poured down on them. And that's why they were told by the Lord Jesus Christ, stay in Jerusalem until God sovereignly will pour the Holy Spirit down on you. He didn't say, whenever you feel ready, take it. It came at God's mercy and in God's timing. And this baptism with the Holy Spirit was also prophesied in the Old Testament. I'll just give you one example. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Again, you have the pouring out, not the bathing. Dear brothers and sisters, there is not a speck of scriptural evidence for baptism by immersion. There is no immersion of anything or anyone in the Scriptures. Now, at the end of the day, it's not a, a hill that we will die on, and I mentioned this last time. But I will also say that theology is a precise science. We have to be precise, especially when we are entrusted with the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to be loose. We, we don't want to play fast and loose with the commands of God as much as we can. That's the vows that we give as ministers. Our salvation comes from above and not from below. Regeneration, the birth from above, as the name says, comes from above. It doesn't come from below. It is given to us by God and not taken from us from below, bathing ourselves in it. Now, the sign of baptism... And the real thing, baptism with the Holy Spirit, have to be connected. The sign has to paint a coherent picture of the real thing. And this simply doesn't happen in immersion. As much as I love my Baptist friends, and some of the Baptists are really my best friends, it pains me to speak about it. But you have to love God more than men. Now, the second question, to whom are we to apply this baptism. Who are the subjects of baptism? That's our second point. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism is very straightforward on this topic in question answer 74. Should infants also be baptized? Yes, it says. Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. And they no less than adults are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood, and the Holy Spirit who works faith. We talked about that. The Holy Spirit works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. My dear friends, this is masterful. This is as compact as you'll ever get it. Baptism is for those who uh, credibly profess faith and for their children. Why do I say that? Uh, that's also the reason why I don't call it infant baptism. 
Because if somebody comes from the street and walks into our church and hears the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners, and he becomes a believer, what are we to do with him if he was never baptized? We cannot make him a baby again. Well, we baptize him in the same way as Abraham was circumcised, as an adult, because he is the first one in his perhaps covenant line to become a believer. So we do baptize adults as well if they become believers and are not properly baptized. Of course, that's not the rule, but we do it. So I would not call it infant baptism or pedo baptism, but covenant baptism. We are covenant baptizers. We are not infant baptizers. Now, why is it that we baptize professing adults and their children, their infants? I will present two major arguments to this end. There are many more, but I will only present the two, two of the major arguments. The first argument is that God ordinarily, as I have just indicated, covenants with heads of households. God begins covenant lines, and I have said this many times before. I'll say it again. What some tease us about is actually nothing to be teased about. If you look in the church directories of uh, churches of the Dutch heritage, you find a lot of similar names and same names. And some, I think, maybe jealously will say, look, they're all related. And I always say, praise the Lord. Because you look around and you see a relative sitting in the pews and in other like-minded churches, and you can say God is truly a covenant faithful God. He covenants not with a few uh, dispersed individuals here and there. He starts covenant lines. He, he covenants with covenant heads and then, then their children and their children's children. And it's a great blessing to see children and children's children and beyond to walk in the ways of the Lord. And the Heilberg Catechism says, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant people, covenant and people. Now, Genesis 17 is our text tonight. And this text shows God entering into a covenant relationship with Abraham. And he says to Abraham in verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. It is an everlasting covenant. That is pretty long. Now, when he talks about the covenant with Abraham, do you think he talks about a different covenant than the ones that true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in our day and age are in? No. It's the same covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. If you don't believe it, read the book of Galatians. Read the Gospels, where the Jews claim that they're Abraham's sons, and Christ makes it abundantly clear that only those are Abraham's son who have the same faith in the same gospel as Abraham and not the ethnic bloodlines. So it's an everlasting covenant and it's a covenant with Abraham and with, its, with his descendants. And this is what so many do not understand, sadly, that the whole concept of covenant 
is not an individualistic concept. That, that it is not that God covenants with an individual here, an individual there, and an individual in another place, but he covenants with households. He covenants, he begins covenant lines and he keeps them. He covenants with families, with covenant heads, with households. God covenanted with Abraham and Abraham's offspring, clearly to be seen in the Bible, both in the Old and in the New Testament. And then there's another text to show us um, this, and uh, I often read this in the morning services as the law in Deuteronomy chapter 5. When the people of Israel are getting ready to enter the promised land into Canaan, and Moses reminds them of their covenant relationship with God, and Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Now, usually you read over this. And at first sight, it sounds rather unspectacular or inconsequential. But think about this. Who was standing there? Who was there when the covenant was started at Horeb? Only three people were there. Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. Everybody else, pretty much the adults were dead. That was 40 years earlier. And yet God says, the Lord our God made a covenant with us. At Horeb. How is this possible? Because God does not address individuals. He addresses soteriology and in the way of salvation, He addresses households. And to make it abundantly clear, let me read the next verse if you're still doubtful if I'm saying the right thing here. In the next verse, you couldn't be any clearer. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. And then in verse 3, which I smartly didn't write into my notes, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. Maybe it was at verse 2, they all looked around with us. What is he talking about? I wasn't there. I was never asked. How can I be part of that covenant? And God says, yeah, you heard me right. The Lord God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. So verse 3 makes exactly that point. Don't look around through the mouth of Moses. Don't look around and be puzzled. This is what I mean. You are bound by the covenant promises of your fathers. And this is the wonderful thing about God's faithfulness. God covenants, multi-generational. Now let us jump now to the New Testament, Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost again, and the Holy Spirit has just been poured out on believers from above. And Peter exclaims in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what does he say next in verse 39? For the promise is for you and for your children. This is New Testament. And for all who are far off, 
Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Same terminology as with Abraham. This is New Testament after the, the time of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. This is New Testament Christianity. For the promise is for you and for your children. And tonight we will see this promise work out in the profession of faith that God is faithful in covenant lines. God covenants with whole families and not just with individuals. The covenant of grace is a multi-generational covenant and therefore its sign must be multi-generational. And that's why we baptize new believers and their children. Now let us move to our second argument and it is this. Baptism is the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision. In our text in Genesis chapter 17, in verses 9 and 10, again, God covenants with Abraham, and he says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. So here comes the sacrament. By the way, here you have the synonymity between the sign and the real thing again. You have this interchangeability because he says, this shall be my covenant. And then he talks about the sign. So he commands household circumcision. Now Abraham was the first one. And this is what Baptists often will bring up, uh, Romans chapter 4, that Abraham was first a believer and then he received the sacrament. Yeah, that's true. Abraham was the first one to receive it. You have to start somewhere. You can't start with a baby. You have to start with a covenant. A baby cannot yet covenant. Keep also in mind that then Abraham turns around and baptizes Isaac on, this, on the eighth day. So he didn't wait until... Uh, uh, Isaac has an age of decision and then circumcises him. So what is circumcision? What, what is circumcision? We could say the same about bap baptism. It is God's brand. It is God putting his sign on us and on our children. Now, if you, if you own cattle and you own a bunch of cattle and one of them uh, has a, uh, gives birth to a young one, what, what do you do? Do you put your brand on it or not? Of course you do. I mean, you could do the Baptist thing and let it just wander around, and once it's 13, it can decide itself on which meadow it's want to stay. I've never heard of a farmer who does such a foolish thing. But when it comes to baptism, we forget this principle. The one who owns the parents owns the child. And it's the same with the sacrament. Circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New Testament. He covenants, he owns the parents, and he owns all of their offspring. God is saying, I have covenanted with you. You are mine, and everything that is yours is mine, including your children. Circumcision was the Old Testament sign and seal of God's covenant promises of union and communion with his people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's the promise of the covenant of grace. That's for all those who believe in Jesus Christ, all those who bow their knees before the Lord Jesus Christ. I will be your God, and you will be 
my people, which means nobody better mess with you. Because who touches you touches the ball of my eyes, says God. And this is something we want to keep in mind. So there is also in the Old Testament a sign, and there is also a spiritual reality. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, we see this spiritual reality for circumcision. It is described there. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you might live. That's the gospel. That's the same promise as we have in the New Testament. The circumcision of our hearts. You receive a new heart. The heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. And then we suddenly see, and suddenly we believe, and suddenly we grow and follow him and live for the glory of his name. It's the same reality that is described. It is a sign and seal for the cleansing of sin from sinners. A sign and seal of salvation in Jesus Christ by the sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4 calls Abraham's circumcision just that, a sign and a seal. If you want to look it up, it's uh, Romans chapter 4 verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Paul describes Old Testament circumcision in the same way as New Testament baptism. As a sign and seal. And since the two have the same meaning and the same covenant of grace, we shall apply them to the same group of people or in the same way. Heads of household who have professed faith in the coming Christ and their offspring. When we read the New Testament, we see, or New Testament history, we see that at some point suddenly... The people in Israel were not circumcised anymore. And we see that they applied naturally baptism in almost precisely the same way as circumcision in the Old Testament. When somebody became a believer, they baptized him, but not only him, but him and his whole household. As you see in Acts with the jailer of Philippi, a wonderful case in point. He and his household were baptized. And there was also an expansion in the subjects of baptism com compared to uh, circumcision. As now the gospel went to the Gentiles, that the, the scope of people who were to be baptized became broader. For example, women and girls were included in the sacrament of baptism. As Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That does not talk about women in office, as some would make us believe. This talks about the expansion of the gospel. It talks about that the gospel is not only for ethnic Jews, it is for all. Whether they be slaves or free, whether they be men or women, and so the, the, the sign of this covenant of grace with the expansion into all the world is also represented in the sign, in the sacrament of baptism. 
Now, in the New Testament, both sacraments changed, of course, to a degree as the shedding of blood. And here you have the explanation why it changed. There were bloody signs. There were both bloody signs. But they had to change because Christ had come. The once and for all blood has been shed, and therefore the sacraments did not need any bloodshed anymore. And therefore they were changed. Not only did um, circumcision change into baptism, but the Passover changed into the Lord's Supper, for there was no need anymore for killing a lamb. There was no more need for this gospel picture of blood because the blood had been shed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can see, beloved, that the New Testament baptism is the fulfillment of Old Testament circumcision and that every criticism that is raised against covenant baptism would also be raised against Old Testament circumcision. That's what many forget. I mean, I hear those flat arguments all the time. I mean, some Baptists think we are completely, uh, completely oblivious to the facts of the Bible. They say, yeah, but a baby cannot decide. I always say, yes, so what? It's not the baby that acts, it's God. It's not the baby that's faithful, it's God. It's not the baby that saves, it's God. And that's represented in baptism. Circumcision and baptism are both signs and seals of the same covenant of grace. Now here's one last example, because I want to make sure you understand this. To show you how baptism replaces and fulfills circumcision. And this one you can really, you can show this to a Baptist and say, look, this is New Testament. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, In him, Jesus that is, also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. This is masterful. One verse. He begins with circumcision, and he refers it to the reality, to the gospel, and then he stays with the gospel, refers it to baptism. What he's saying is both circumcision and baptism refer to the same thing. This is the New Testament sacrament. This was the Old Testament sacrament. The salvation was always the same. Paul is wonderfully showing the connection. And baptism is the fulfillment or the continuation of Old Testament circumcision and not something completely different. It is a sign of the enduring faithfulness of both God, God in the Old and in the New Testament. The God who doesn't change. I'm God, I change not, he says. But some will try to explain to us that the New Testament God has become a humanist suddenly. And he would never do anything against your will. Well, he hasn't asked the baby. Well, he owns the baby. It's his. He doesn't have to ask. Beloved, in a few moments, we will all be witnesses of God's unwavering faithful, faithfulness, covenant faithfulness. As Lucas will give his profession of faith for the glory of God and for the encouragement of Christ's church. And I'm grateful. I don't know if you realize this. I don't plan this. I go by the catechism, and it so often fits so well. 
both in the mornings and in the evenings. I hope you see these things. This state was also not in accordance with what I'm going to preach. I have long given up on that. The Holy Spirit is much better at it, as you can see. And we will see God's covenant faithfulness. We will see once again how faithful he is in Jesus Christ. The Christ who will never leave us nor forsake us. Glory be to his name. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we stand once again in awe before your word and before your truths. How faithful you are. How great you are. And we thank you, O living God, that we can see tonight by the choreography of your Spirit how faithful you are. That we have a real-life example and there will be more. That we, you put the stamp of approval on this doctrine. That you're not an individualist, but you're covenant-instituting and covenant-keeping God. And we thank you for it. Be with us now as we receive our brother Lucas into full communion. Glorify your name and encourage your people. For we ask it in the name that is above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is King of this church. In his name we pray. Amen.